This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and in this episode, uh, we are in conversation with Lucy Bernholtz. Uh, now, I'm really excited about this one. I've been wanting to get Lucy on the podcast for ages, so it was absolutely great to, to finally get a chance to talk to her. Uh, and many of you may know Lucy already by reputation, but um, she is the director of the Digital Civil Society Lab at uh, Stanford University's Centre on Philanthropy and Civil Society, but has also uh, written and kind of spoken much more broadly for a long time now on issues around philanthropy and particularly the kind of the role of technology and uh, the way in which it will affect philanthropy and, and civil society and and every year produces um her blueprint which is a kind of forecast of uh big issues that might be affecting philanthropy for in the year to come which is uh, always kind of required reading around these parts so yeah it was great to have a chance to, to talk to to lucy and we kind of focused in on questions around technology although we as you'll hear we sort of went more broadly um but we sort of started off talking about the question of whether digital civil society was no longer really a meaningful concept and whether actually the distinction if any between digital civil society and civil society more broadly was now so blurred that we had to consider the the two as essentially the same uh, and we also talked about whether the impact of the pandemic and the sort of enforced digitization that had gone on for many organizations had accelerated some of that blurring and we talked there about uh, the the question of the sort of increasing reliance of civil society on digital infrastructure and platforms and what some of the risks are in assuming that these digital spaces are actually kind of objective public spaces and what we might be kind of losing as we cede control over some of those spaces to those those who own and operate platforms. Um, we talked about uh, social movements and you know, the ways in which people are able to organise using some of these new tools and what some of the, the strengths of that were, but also what some of the uh, potential weaknesses might be. We talked about data quite a bit. So we talked about the role um, that civil society could play in kind of modelling uh, positive and responsible approaches to collecting and using data and how it could use this to kind of influence more broadly uh, the tech sector and government about uh, issues around data ownership and security and, and usage. We also uh, talked quite a bit about how that might uh, change in the future as the kind of increasing process of datafication um, uh, takes place, uh, particularly thinking about what will happen when the internet is no longer something that is kind of contained in uh, computer terminals or phones or, or laptops um, or tablets but is actually something that's kind of integrated into all of the objects around us and there's a kind of digital substrate or an internet of things that is collecting uh, data on kind of uh, on us at all points in our life and creating uh, sort of digital twins of objects. We also talked um, about the particular question about how civil society addresses some of the negative consequences of technology and what role civil society organisations might have to play in that, in, in kind of highlighting what some of those negative consequences might be and also challenging them at a policy level and we had a really interesting conversation about whether the framing in terms of ethics and kind of tech ethics 
had become problematic because it allowed the tech industry to retain ownership of that narrative and made it sound as though it was something that was was just about changes of behavior within that industry when actually we needed to think more in terms of kind of more traditional levers of legislation and policy um, and then at the end we talked a bit um, kind of more broadly about the question of what the value of foresight is in civil society and what that means in practical terms for organizations and I also got an opportunity to ask uh, Lucy who is by training historian about what role that training and her kind of historical perspective plays in helping her to think about the future which was really interesting so without further ado uh, let's go into the conversation i hope you enjoy it i think there's lots of really fascinating stuff in there i certainly had a great time talking to lucy um, and i'll be back at the end for a bit of housekeeping and tidying up okay great so i'm here with lucy bernholtz hi lucy hi rodri um, and Lucy is director of the Digital Civil Society Lab at Stanford University Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society, um, and a well-known expert all around the world on issues to do with philanthropy, uh, how technology impacts it, the intersection between philanthropy, civil society, technology and the law, and all sorts of other things. Um, and I'm really looking forward to having a chance to, to talk to you today. It's been something I've been meaning to do for, for a long time. Um, and maybe the best place to start is just for you to say a little bit in your own words about kind of of who you are and, and you know what kind of work you do there at the Digital Civil Society Lab. Sure, thank you, and thanks so much for having me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so I am an historian by training, but the question that uh, motivates me, uh, both personally and professionally, uh, and has for oh God, I don't know, the last thirty years, is what's public, what's private, and who decides. And that actually is a question that um, you know is a is a good point of entree into thinking about philanthropy and democracies. Uh, it, it's turning out, and it has turned out, <laughs> to be a really good question uh, for thinking about the role of digital technologies. Um, and so I think that's kind of the um, orientation. And I've been fortunate enough to both work in foundations and nonprofits for governments. I ran my own business. And now um, we started the Digital Civil Society Lab at Stanford uh, almost 10 years ago at this point. And um, get to ask uh, really important questions about uh, the future of civil society and democracies. Yeah, absolutely. And I know uh, maybe a good place to sort of pick up on that is in that that framing of, of the centre as the Digital Civil Society Lab. I think there's something, you know, really interesting there. And I, I wonder if you could say a bit more about how you characterise digital civil society as a specific space. And also whether you feel, I know you've written about this before, that actually increasingly the distinction between digital civil society and civil society is, is increasingly meaningless because the two are becoming the same. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because when we actually named the Digital Civil Society Lab, we joked among ourselves that we'd know we were successful when we could get rid of the digital world. <laughs> um, so yes, they're, they're one and the same. Um, and they have been increasingly becoming that and probably tipped over into what we think of as digital civil society sometime, oh, I don't know, um, uh, at least a decade ago. Um, and so the definition of digital civil society that we use is that it's all the ways people uh, voluntarily use their private resources for public benefit in the digital age. And um, what we're getting at there is that it's it both is how we do it, it's, it's what we do. We increasingly um, share digital data as a resource and need to think about that. 
And it's really trying to um, focus people's attention on the dependencies that the digital part creates. So if you think of civil society, whatever um, definition you have, there's always been some um, both democratic, theoretical, and lived sense that civil society is in some way, somehow independent from the market and the government. And it's, you know, a a partner to them, it can be a, a restraint on them, it can be a path to them, but it's somehow separate from. And what we uh, are concerned about at the lab is that in an age when we as individuals and our associations and our organizations and our formal and informal alliances are dependent on digital technologies that are built by companies, surveilled by companies, and monitored and surveilled by governments, where exactly is that independence? And if it no longer exists, then democracy theory and history tells us that's a real problem. <laughs> if it does exist, or if we want it to exist, our hypothesis at the lab is, well, we better get cracking on making that happen because um, the direction we've been going in which we just kind of take up these technologies without really understanding how they work or what compromises they require, uh, quite frankly, isn't working out very well for democracy. Yeah, and I think I mean I think your point there and and this this idea that actually the the kind of naive or utopian assumption that you get from the early days of the internet that we could somehow create a kind of truly you know digital public space I think the fact that everything now happens one way or another through you know platforms that are controlled to say usually by private corporations and possibly kind of uh, quite willing to work in partnership with governments of all stripes creates all kinds of concerns and um, could you just say a bit more maybe about what what you feel some of the kind of key challenges or problems that the those dependencies create are i mean is it just that we're introducing gatekeepers into the the space in which we choose to associate or is it something more sinister than that i think there's a couple of levels of it so um and it's not so much even just gatekeepers, although that is a problem. Um, it's more that we've lost control, actually. It's possible. I, I, I should, I should uh, caveat this. It's quite possible that we don't actually control who we associate with. So let me spell that out for you. Um, we, you've heard a lot. We read a lot. There's a fabulous body of research ever growing on the way platforms manipulate what you see. And this is the conversation about misinformation, disinformation, hate speech, all of that, right? Um, and because we've conceptualized the internet as a communications medium, and that's how it got its start. I mean, we used it to share information. That makes a lot of sense. But what we have to recognize is that the internet has left the building. Um, we now, and, and if you're calling from the UK, you know this even better than I, the city of London holds some kind of global record for the number of closed circuit television cameras that are installed. But our built environment, uh, or what's you know, uh, uh, colloquially called the internet of things, means that 
all around us out in the physical world, we're also being tracked by digital sensors everywhere we go. If you go into a car park, if you go into a building, um, if you travel, you know, through a toll booth, um, if you are, you know, the cell towers over which our phones that our phones use, um, stingray devices, license plate readers, all of the, you know, the beacons in the retail stores, really, we are taking the internet out of the out from behind the screen, and putting it onto the streets. And so we are creating trails of data and, and um, people refer to this often as being datafied um, or having a digital avatar almost all the time. If you have smart therm thermostats in your house, if you wear Fitbits, this happens all night while you're asleep. So, you know, it's sort of omnipresent. It's actually harder now for people in uh, places where there's functioning electricity and functioning internet to go offline than to be online in the old parlance. So that's what, now why does that matter? It matters because it's not simply that there's a trail of breadcrumbs being left behind us. It's that third parties, uh, companies or governments use those breadcrumbs and use it to direct us to where we're going in front of us. So it's not just this trail behind us, it's what you see online. It's what gatherings you find out about and might be able to participate in. It's quite possible that the, in fact, it's more likely than not, that the characterization that a company has of you or me based on these tiny little granular bits of data that they then use to create these avatars of us aren't even accurate. Right? We often joke, why are they selling me, showing me ads for mint chocolate chip ice cream? I don't like mint chocolate chip ice cream. But what if they also think you're somebody of some characteristic that you're not um, and are shaping who you interact with and who, what um, events you hear about, what communities you're made aware of, uh, what gatherings you might be invited to and so on and so forth. Um, so there's quite a bit more than just the idea that these companies and governments have all this individual data on us. It's that they, they don't just collect it, they actually use it to nudge us or close doors and open others. And we've seen some really horrible examples of, of how this can actually create profoundly unsafe situations, real physical harm and death. Um, and coming, stepping back from that horrifying brink, the idea that, that I choose where to worship or what political group to affiliate with or what civic issues to get concerned and activated about, that process itself is now being intermediated and shaped by these, uh, by this datafied world that we live in. And that's highly problematic, um, even at the far end from the true horror and harm, but at the just the conceptual level, the idea that we as individuals may not anymore be in control in the way we think we are of deciding with whom to gather.
Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I had a problem with the microphone there. Um, no, I mean, I, I've got a lot of questions off the back of that. I think it's absolutely fascinating. I think you're, what you're saying there about actually realising that the way in which you know, information and choices are presented to us is not objective and is underpinned by all sorts of decisions and processes that we're often not aware of, you know, controlled by people that we aren't you know, able to see and don't have a direct relationship with is, is I guess, something people are starting to be aware of in some contexts, but I think there's a huge amount more, you know, a huge amount further to go on that. And um, I mean, my, my first question, I guess, was, I always wonder with with this sort of stuff, like why we are allowing it to happen and whether it's just something, whether it's only happening to us because we are unaware of it or whether it's more about the organisations and those who control the data sort of playing upon our desire to get the benefits of giving up data and having choices presented to us and automation and convenience and trying to find, you know, the the furthest possible point they can go to in in kind of taking control of that data until suddenly we realize that actually the bargain's not worth it. And it feels like that's something that's happened a little bit with some of the issues around Facebook and when it blew up around Cambridge Analytica and others, that suddenly people go, hang on a minute, I, I don't think I consented to that. And then it sort of dies down again and we go in these cycles. But do, do you think it is just that we're, we're trying to, to sort of go through a process of working out how much data we are willing to give up about ourselves as individuals to get those benefits or are people just not thinking about it? So I think, um, I mean, the answer I hear most often when I talk to people who are, um, you know, connected, but not um, studying these issues um, is that they feel as if uh, it, 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 you know, the, the phrase I hear is they've got all my data. What am I going to do about it? And um, and this is, I'm speaking here from a U.S. perspective, um, because we as a nation have been the slowest and are still the most resistant to uh, regulating this entire space. Uh, and we could, you and I could talk for weeks about that. But we are the creators of a lot of the technology and the most resistant to uh, regulating it, which go hand in hand. Um, so there's a sense of fatalism that like it's already too late. But for the most part, I think what's happened is it has been a tyranny of convenience um, that we have um, been seduced uh, by the idea that you could press a button on your phone and make a car show up and take you somewhere. Um, and that the majority of the, while the majority of the world depends on these technologies, the profile of the people making them does not represent the profile of the people who use them. Um, so we've also, nor do, and, and the incentives of the companies that those people work for, right, is, are a very narrow subset of all that could have been possible. Um, so I want to be clear that I think um, the technologies themselves could be put to different uses, but it's the political economy of the uh, corporatization um, and uh, the, the um, worldview, perhaps, of those who actually are trained to work at these companies that have allowed this very extractive, 
very power imbalanced dynamic to take such firm grip. And so now when it becomes time for um, you know, regulatory conversations, uh, those corporate powers are 10 yards further along while they were sucking up all this data. Um, I'm not quite sure I answered your question, but I don't think there's a, a single reason. I think there's a multiplicity of them. But I do think it's about the profit-making capacity of this invisible small thing, digital data, that for the individual person doesn't seem like much of a trade-off when, you know, in return, I can get my groceries delivered to my house or whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I, I lost you very briefly there, but um, just, just while you were talking. But um, I, I mean, I think I mean certainly in what you said, there was already an enormous amount that I wanted to pick up on. Um, and and one of those things is you were talking there a number of times about um, the idea of um, regulation and, and legislation as tools for for dealing with some of the challenges we've seen around technology. And I, I wondered there how how you felt that related to the focus there seemed to have been up to now on the idea that the way in which to deal with these problems was to make tech more ethical and actually it was about engaging with you know the tech the development of tech and the tech industry and influencing it and making it more ethical and actually increasingly a sense some people have that that's kind of let the tech industry off the hook because they've just been allowed to to come up for them for themselves with the solutions and present what they do as as being driven by ethics and actually what we need is some you know good old-fashioned hard legislation and regulation i mean do you, do you see that conversation shifting at all in terms of di- in the digital civil society circles yes absolutely and um i'm grateful to europe and the european union for pushing it um i think the you know the uh the don't regulate us let us do this carefully uh and um, ethically argument is as old as as industry. And, and we've been through it with every industry. We've been through it with finance. We've been through it with tobacco. We've been through it with pharmaceuticals. Um, and in some parts of the world, that conversation, the the role of the public voice and the, and the respect for public oversight is much stronger than it, hears, than it is here in the U.S. where there's, you know, everybody on every end of the political spectrum here likes to pick on government, but um, it's, it's a, just a fallacious, ridiculous thing that we keep believing. And the trust us will be good this time argument, um, I think is when spoken by industry. I think it's absolutely uh, said, I think teaching engineers and computer scientists and and everyone um, about um, uh, political philosophy and equity and structural inequities, you know, is is a critical part of raising humans. Um, And so engineers and computer scientists absolutely do not get a pass from me. So there's a difference between teaching ethics um, and challenging young professionals to think through the human effects of what they're building that's good. Listening to any one of the big five, big 10 companies say, this is too complicated. You can't understand it. We've got this 
gets a zero from me because again, we've heard it. We've heard it. I'll list the companies again, the telephone companies, the pharmaceutical companies, the oil companies, the, I mean, yeah, right. Guess what? You're not the smartest kids on the block. Um, and in fact, about human impacts, um, structural racism, uh, economic inequality, you're actually probably at the very back of the class. So I don't buy it for a second. No, I, I think I'm watching this, <laughs> the process of a load of uh, engineers and, and developers sort of discover undergraduate social and political sciences is an yeah. ongoing source of right. I mean, right, exactly. When they come up with things like, hey, there ought to be an academic discipline in this when there yeah. have been several of them for, for decades, but they never left the, the, the computer lab. Um, but actually, let me, because it does, it is a very complicated place then for civil society. And this is something I think we really don't, I don't know that there's one answer to because civil society has two potential paths here and they've bounced around from them for the most part. The, the path of, well, let's engage and help the companies do better, right? We can bring a human rights perspective. We can be on their oversight boards. We can be their advisory councils. We can do the complicated, culturally specific, linguistically specific um, content moderation with them and help them prevent further harm, or we can stand outside and protest and you know file shareholder proxies and and actually really advocate from the outside against. And that's a tough choice. And civil society is and has been on both sides of that. And I don't think there's one answer. Although I, I do think that the efforts to work from the inside have led to um, what we're learning are really profound power imbalances and co-optation that would make me quite skeptical were I leading a rights organization now and, and receiving an invitation from any of these companies to please come help us be better. Is they've had they've had a, you know two decades to fail and they've failed repeatedly. I, yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree on that. In that, I think the theory of insider influencing around these issues is absolutely right. It's just, I mean, certainly from what I've seen, the reality is that, as you say, in those rooms, the power imbalance is such that it's almost impossible for ninety nine percent of of civil society organisations to meaningfully influence their you know, they're even even if the tech companies are well intentioned, actually, you know, if they end up hearing things they don't want to hear, they probably don't want to do anything about it. And in the worst cases, the civil society organizations are being deliberately brought in in order to provide window dressing. And that's, you know, potentially even more damaging for for them and their credibility. So, um, you know, I, I do, you know, I, I guess it is a big challenge for, for digital civil society. I mean, do you think there are I guess, apart from just giving up on insider influencing and focusing on trying to push, well, I, I either campaigning from the outside through sort of public pressure or looking through more traditional sort of policy levers and regulatory mechanisms, are are there ways of redressing or kind of shifting that power balance sufficiently back in the other direction that civil society can engage on something like even terms with the tech, tech sector? Um, so there's there's at least four domains of strategy that um, 
I think need to be worked on simultaneously and in the same direction. So um, the, to the way you phrase that particular question, I would argue that the kind of um, anti-corporate uh, boycotting and shaming and, and sort of the typical toolkit of calling out bad corporate practice um, is profoundly important from civil society. And I, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it going on. Um, it's been a little bit slower to develop, and I can tell you why I think that is, but it, it's out there. The stop hate for profit um, efforts, for example. But they have to be simultaneous with um, real engagement in regulatory reform. The public has to take back control of these systems that are owned by a handful of companies that literally uh, shape almost every aspect of our life. You know, it's pervasive. It's like the financial system. It's in everything um, digital technology is now. And so uh, they're no longer a single industry yet they're, they're managed by, you know, they're, they're dominated by a handful of companies. So those two things have to happen simultaneously, I think. And in addition, other strategies that are really important is that the technology itself, digital technology that connects people and that aggregates information and that um, allows, you know, uh, the creation of data sets that can help us find patterns that we wouldn't otherwise have seen and perhaps really address some shared systemic problems. Those are all things we should be pursuing, but we shouldn't be doing, we shouldn't be being led by the companies that are trying to make money off of it. So there are unfortunately only two examples that I'm aware of, of technologies that are globally, um, I don't know if they're, they're not dominant, but they're widely used. They have massive market share um, that are created and run by nonprofits. Um, and I wish there were more. The two that I'm thinking of are Mozilla and the Firefox browser um, and uh, Signal, the encrypted messaging app, right? So the technology can be created and managed and, and marketed and used and, and you know, purposeful uh, built in a different set of institutional and financial values. Um, we have, and I, Wikipedia should probably also be in that mix. So there's three <laughs> out of, you know, thousands. Um, how can we do that so that we're actually taking them on product for product, um, value for value? Um, I think that's worth, that's a, that's a moonshot that, um, has been attempted in small ways, but not in a sustainable, really um, globally connected um, possible way. Um, and then there's, uh, there's just the ongoing, ever, ever shifting, but never disappearing reality of helping people understand what compromises they're making when they use these technologies, but both uh, people, you and me, and our institutions. You know, what are we giving up to to work this way? And is that a compromise we are comfortable with? Um, what are the risks? Nonprofits, um, civil society organizations in general, need to get much better at um, literally uh, using these tools and not just using these tools. Mm. <laughs> 
Not being used by them, I should say, yeah. I guess. Um, and on, on that particular, I mean, there's, uh, I think there's, there's something I, I want to touch on in a minute about whether you feel as though this, the sort of enforced digitization that, that seems to have happened over this period when everyone has, you know, organizations and individuals have been in lockdown will have any meaningful impact on the, how high in the minds of, of people in the nonprofit world these issues are. Um, but, but just before I, I come to that one, I just wanted to ask actually in, in that overall kind of ecosystem of digital civil society, we've been talking quite a lot about the civil society organizations and the nonprofits and what they could do. What, what's the role of foundations and philanthropic funders here? Because it feels like they have a lot to bring to the table. And at the moment, apart from a small handful, then they're not there funding these things. Is that, a, is that perception right? Yeah, that perception is not only right, it, it's it's better, it's it's a rosier gloss than I would put on it, <laughs> which is that um, there, with some important notable exceptions, and here again, I also do see some change happening, which is um, belated but very welcome. Um, most foundations have actually been more a part of the problem than part of the solution, because they've either ignored the whole thing and left nonprofits to um, make deals with the devil for whatever they could get for free um, because the foundations and public sector funders weren't funding technology because that's just admin or overhead, right? So there's responsibility there. The opportunity cost of that is that it opened up the world for the blank for good offers that make financially free technology very attractive to under-resourced nonprofits. So they've signed all kinds of contracts and use all kinds of cloud software that they don't pay a lot of money for, but it means that they're actually operating their entire organization somewhere on a folder on Amazon's hard drive, right? So there, there's that. On the other side, the push toward things that are called you know, digital transformation and things like that, um, there's been a lot of funding in that area. Um, and I think we need to get much better at um, sussing out the, the self-servingness of that from um, the tech vendors to the, okay, yes, we wanna be digitally capable um, and digitally uh, um, uh, skilled and wired, and we know that these compromises for these tools are unacceptable to our mission, and therefore we're not going to do them. So that requires funding for either, um, you know, things, alternatives to the stuff that's free but debilitating, or um, funding for the kind of informed staff that can make those decisions. Um, and then the third way a lot of funding has been detrimental. Um, and this is something foundations actually can change quickly is as part and parcel of the emphasis on metrics uh, and outcomes has been a huge push to get non-for-profit organizations and civil society groups to collect all kinds of very sensitive information on the people they work with. Yet at the same time, they don't have the capacity or the skills to protect that information. So the funders are actually making these organizations do things they shouldn't do in service of some funders stated aspiration for outcomes and metrics. You know, I'd give that, that argument a little more uh, of a pass if I ever saw foundations actually work from that information, <laughs> but we never even get to see that. 
So it's 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 just in, in from many many directions, uh, the foundation uh, role in this has been detrimental, not helpful. There again, there are big important exceptions, and I think funders are. And to your question about the pandemic and the shelter in place, um, the good news is it. Uh, and I hear again a US perspective because I don't know how the conversation is going over in the UK. Um, nothing in the last decade has done more to make everyday people as well as um, everyday people who work at nonprofits uh, and everyday people who work at foundations much more aware of how dependent they are on these tools and much more at least there's much more public available information to them, news stories on the television, on the radio, in the paper, on social media, about the surveillant nature of those technologies. So um, hopefully people take a step back and go, wait a minute, okay, I get this. I have to have a video conferencing software installed because I can't, my kid can't go to school or, and I can't go to work without one. But now I really feel like I'm having this conversation in some company's <laughs> conference room because I literally am, right? So there's a little bit of a, um, a, a, a downside and, a, and an upside. And I'd love to see people really taking advantage of that upside. And I think led by some of the big foundations who are have been aware of the downsides of technology for a long time, that there's there's a real possibility there. Yeah, I mean, it's really, really interesting. And I think this, I mean, certainly the idea of, you know, one potential avenue for solution being for funders and others to come together to create alternatives to, to some of these. I mean, would you see that as being genuinely a sort of alternative that it would be feasible for organisations to to, to adopt as an alternative to, to the, the current sort of small handful of commercial platforms or more about demonstrating the possibility of a different way of doing things? Because all I wonder is actually the the challenges when you see kind of competitors to, to Google or to Facebook or whatever is even if what they're offering is, you know, as good in terms of UX or whatever, and it's much better in terms of ethics and principles and all these sorts of things, the first mover advantage of being the one that's in there with all the connections and users everything means it's almost impossible to convince anybody to stop using it because, you know, the alternative, it just has less utility. So I think here what the sector or, and let me make it actually manageable. Imagine someone listening to this podcast is a foundation program officer and, or a foundation president. And she says, wow, I've, I've really started to wonder about the, the, um, the, the nature of the digital systems that we use for everything. So I'm not, I can't change the world. I'm just gonna work on my portfolio of 300 organizations or whatever. Within that domain, even in a small scale like that, there's nothing to stop foundations from saying to their nonprofit partners, we're really concerned about the, the, the safety, the security and the privacy issues of how we communicate with you. So we who have money have, you know, done the research, we've looked into this, we've developed a bunch of protocols and, and practices, and we're going to share them with you, um, including access to what in general, the alternatives happen to be open source and, and, and free of cost. 
Um, so instead of Zoom, you use Jitsi or something like that, right? We're gonna provide you with the capacity, meaning the time for you to learn how to do this. We're gonna you know, give you a trainer or give you the money to actually implement this in your organization. And we're gonna ask for you to file your reports with us through this encrypted portal and we'll train you in that. And you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, all of that is you could do yesterday. Right, you you could still get the data you want. You could keep your electronic grant applications. You could file your reports. You could have Zoom You could have video conferences on something other than Zoom, and it could be a capacity building and learning exercise for both your staff and your nonprofits all at the same time. And in the meantime, you could also do what actually, to my delight, a couple of. Uh, big foundations recently did, which was they sent a letter to Google and said, you know, your advertising practices are messing with our grantees. Knock it off. <laughs> right? I mean, my God, that has to have been a first. Right? So, so th yeah, they said, because, you know, when uh, the Red Cross is advertised next to some QAnon statements, like not a good thing. And so a couple of funders recently sent off a letter. Did it have any impact? No, but can they do it? Yes. Should they do more of it? Yes, <laughs> right? Like they're not really actually taking the power they have. I think that's might even be what frustrates me most in this work that I do is that there's power sitting on the table that we're saying to ourselves, we the nonprofits, we the foundations, oh, we can't do that. We don't have that. We don't have enough. What, what's stopping you? Um, the, the advocacy, the activist community, um, the people, it is a game of whack-a-mole and there's just as much intelligence. Actually, I think there's more. There's more wisdom. There's more um, robust intelligence. There's more tech savvy. There's more concern for people's safety, uh, for issues of, of racism and structural imbalances and addressing on the civil society side of the equation when it comes to the skills and capacities. That information and expertise is runs throughout civil society or it's all in civil society. Let me say that everyone who's got that information is in civil society. The folks who work for the companies know how to extract data for profit. Great, right? <laughs> so why aren't we organizing and listening and, and joining up with, I mean, the, the people at RightsCon, the, the folks who are protesting in the streets and protecting themselves, the democracy activists in Santiago and Hong Kong, right? They know how to use tech safely. And yet we, the funders say, okay, let's all use Zoom. And don't, you know, we're not going to even give you enough money to have a paid account. So you won't even get the encryption. And we don't have enough power to get Zoom to encrypt your, you know, bull. There's power being left on the table that actually is, a, is as much a matter of, of will and vision and imagination and resources. And by the way, last time I looked, the foundations, you know, still have a lot of money. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's really interesting as a, a different sort of power analysis within civil society when it comes to tech issues, because I think it is, it's quite easy to fall into a sort of fatalist. Oh, well, you know, what, what can we do? We're just a little old nonprofit and that's Facebook. And actually, as you say, at an aggregate level, if you take into account all of that, 
existing body of knowledge and skills about tech issues and how to kind of use tech and challenge tech and the funding side of the ecosystem as well all of a sudden you know it's not an insignificant amount of power it's just not being joined up in the right ways which exactly it's not yeah. being acknowledged and joined up in it in the, i mean if you look historically at this which i'm you know required by law to do um <laughs> by law and personality this there was a moment in time when digital technologies became profoundly corporatized and prior to that they were much more rooted in a sense of equity and access and opportunity you know it wasn't like the the utopian moment was hallucinogenic <laughs> it was real um and then there was a whole lot of money to be made and that was a profound turning point but that kind of expertise and even you know we're young enough in this period where a lot of those people are still alive particularly women and people of color and and non-us english speaking hackers and 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 technology players, right, who've always been, who have been increasingly marginalized by the white English U.S. corporatization of this space. But the expertise is out there. And there could be such vision of, of a better and a different if we listen to them. And many of them are, you know, they're probably communities in, in Manchester and Liverpool and London and Dublin that I'm not connected to, but I know here there's, you know, communities in Brooklyn and Detroit and um, uh, 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 St. Louis that are, you know, led by really smart activists and advocates focused on issues of fairness and equity and justice who figure out how to put the technology to work for them. And, and it's, those are the people I want to follow. Those are the people whose vision I think we all want to be part of. And how do we raise them up and listen to what they have to teach us? Um, that actually is, is quite doable. And at the same time, you keep suing the pants off the big companies and you write regulations and you listen to the EU, right? You, you regulate them. They, they don't get a pass. Why, does, why do these five guys get a pass? I don't Sorry. Yeah, that, 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 the idea <laughs> that the you know we, we, they're too big to regulate seems oh, very, that seems very 2018 right now. It's kind of yeah. no. I think I think we can. And as you say, the EU actually has taken the lead. I think at first being seen to be sort of mad and then brave, and then suddenly everybody said, "Oh yeah, actually you can just treat these as kind of fairly old-fashioned kind of antitrust or you know monopoly cases." Yeah. And it's yeah. Not that hard. I, I mean, the questions are complex. I don't want to make it sound like it's you know you know as easy as opening a door. It's complicated. Um, it's very complicated when, you know, a conversation I was having earlier where you're talking about like, how do you manage um, personal safety for marginalized communities? And really the solution suddenly starts to feel like antitrust law. Like that is a really big chasm, right? That's a long way. That's a lot of steps. There's a lot of um, expertise that's needed in there, but doable but very dual, you know, like if it's a question of political will, it's, it's not, um, it's not something we don't know how to do, or at least we, we have plenty of experience doing it for other industries, um, and rebalancing that, uh, in ways that protect people and, and serve the public interest. Um, we're, we're moving way too slowly right now. And um, you know, we don't have a lot of time. 
I'm I'm aware I'm, I'm in danger of keeping you too long. And the list of questions I've got here is it's only getting longer, not shorter. But I mean, one thing I, I wanted to move on just to, to ask you about because it's something I'm I'm particularly interested in, and also I think I mean it feels very kind of timely at the moment. Um, and it sort of I guess moves beyond what we've been talking about there, perhaps about the the sort of infrastructure of digital civil society. So let's assume for a moment that either we kind of are aware of those issues about, you know, who controls it and owns it and, and the challenges that raises or that we've, you know, solved them perhaps. But but on top of that, that infrastructure, it seems one of the really interesting things is the way in which people are using it to organise in new ways or or perhaps organise in, in old ways, but at a scale or speed that, that wasn't previously possible. And we see a lot of focus on kind of, you know, decentralised and leaderless movements of one sort or another, sort of, you know, um, Extinction Rebellion and Black Lives Matter and, and all these, you know, names that very much seem to be in at the front of recent, of high profile recent social change efforts. And um, how do you think that relates to kind of traditional nonprofits and civil society? Do you think it is something they should view as you know, an opportunity or a challenge or kind of a gauntlet thrown down or, or are they things that they themselves could be harnessing? Yeah, I think they are complementary strategies and that both sides of that equation, people on both sides of that divide, if it is a divide, need to figure out how to bridge the divide. So I think the, um, the distributed leaderless movements um, and the ability to raise a lot of money in small bits from all over the globe quickly and um, in ways that can, you know, pay to get things done is is very exciting. I think particularly in, um, uh, in a world powered by distributed technologies, distributed leadership is incredibly important. Um, and I think movements play a, a, a his, a powerful historic and, and future role in um, making the pressure for change felt and felt by um, the institutions that can both carry some of that change and that need to change. We're, we're not moving to an institutionless world. We're creating different institutions. And as we do that, the existing nonprofits, the existing organizations ought to be paying a lot of attention to well, what do we keep and what do we leave behind? Um, what, do, what, what really needs to be created? The, the fourth domain of change that the lab is really interested in is what are the new organizations gonna look like, right? What, what skills do they need to have? What kind of um, requirements uh, for reporting and corporate structure are really necessary now? How do you use digital data for public benefit? We've been tacking that onto organizations that were created to use money and time for public benefit. But digital data is a totally different thing. Um, and so there's a, I'm not a, an either or kind of person. I think there's an adaptation on both sides of that if you set them up as separate. Social movements are adapting their, what they do leaderlessly and distributed and what they actually set up sort of centralized consolidated clear lines of authority if those are necessary things for. And civil society organizations need to figure out how do they step in and step out? How do they partner with? How do they stand behind and help push? How do they then also become the person who, or the organization that has the 
staff that can write the brief that can be taken to the board of supervisors, you know, the, 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 more, the more bureaucratic stuff. You need both. Um, and the, the challenge I see right now, something I've been thinking about a lot here is, and this is again a US perspective, in previous moments when there's been this awareness of, oh my God, look at all those people in the streets making all this change happen and we're over here doing this other stuff and it's not really that useful. Maybe we should engage with them. Those white led hierarchical institutional structures that decide to, hey, let's be allies to be it black or indigenous um, um, movements for change they do it in such a way that they're they're setting themselves up to co-opt and be destructive as opposed to change their own ways to join the movement and let the movement lead and they can bring what they have which tends to be money and might not be much more than money <laughs> but go ahead bring the money just leave behind your norms your assumptions and your values about how this work has to be done that's what we're facing right now and I'm hopeful that we're not going to see another co-optation by white institutions of indigenous or black or Latino or other groups efforts, but actually white people will be learning how to be supportive and not um, co-opting. And that is hard, super hard. And there's no success record in the past, really. <laughs> No, and it, it, as you say, it is, you know, it's a known challenge when you get the interaction of philanthropic funders and movements. I certainly, um, a while, not that long ago, maybe last year, I had uh, Megan Moon Francis on the podcast and we were talking about the work she'd been doing, particularly looking at the history of the NAACP and the Garland Fund. And, you know, and you see it again with the environmental justice movement, all these sorts of things. And, and yeah, it does feel as though that's one of the big questions at the moment as there's kind of enthusiasm to engage with social movements. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I just there's just a couple if I can possibly squeeze in a couple more questions mm -hmm. yeah 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 sure um and one as as we were talking there I think um I'd been thinking um before and I was going to ask but I, it seems like a point uh at which to come back to it is if if it's you know if these kind of new models of creating groups are available and particularly the sort of barriers to group creation have been lowered is one of the challenges for civil society in the future going to be perhaps less that you know, malign actors in control of the platforms are censoring in an old-fashioned way and stopping them from doing things, and more that there will be such a proliferation of groups on sort of all sides of a debate, some of whom might be genuine, and there's just a kind of natural plurality, but also you get things like astroturfing and groups kind of created just just to, to confuse everything through noise, that actually we need to be as worried about sort of censorship through information overload as, as anything else. I mean, is, is this something you've, you've seen any signs of happening and should we be kind of thinking about it? Oh my gosh, it's happening all over the place. It happens all the time. And I think actually, yeah, getting your, a, a factual engaging message heard nowadays must be one of the most difficult things to do. Right. Um, so yes, I think, uh, any group that is operating under an assumption that they can just put their word out there and it will be heard um, hasn't really figured out how this all works. So um, I don't know 
who we're going to trust in the future. And I don't know how we're, we're going to trust somebody. I mean, people will find sources to trust, but I don't know what that process is going to look like. Um, I think civil society organizations, nonprofits, foundations, every one of us should um, sort of start from an assumption that uh, whoever I'm trying to speak to, that it's electronically intermediated, um, I shouldn't assume that they trust me, right? Like how, what do I need to do to earn that trust? over and over and over and over again. And too often civil society sort of talks about how trusted we are without really talking about how we're gonna keep that going. And I'm not so sure that's, I mean, I know that's not a good strategy. I'm not so sure it's it's the truth. Um, so yes, you need to get smarter about all the ways that information gets manipulated. It's highly possible, you know, we're living in pandemic times when for lots of reasons we're craving physical proximity to people. Um, what an incredible opportunity to provide some kind of gatherings or, or in the transitional period back to physical gathering or whatever, where there's really a direct attention to, this is what we do and this is who we are and this is what we care about and this is what where we get our information from. To, you know, being direct about it and not being stuck in some old mindset that because you have a .org after your name, oh my God, right? Like that, that signals something, that signals exactly nothing, um, but it should signal something and we should make it signal something. It needs direct attention. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, <laughs> the answer to your question after yeah, all no, that is no, yes. Really, <laughs> good, good. I'm glad, glad you've got a definitive <laughs> answer. Um, I, I'm just one final question, although it's one of those questions where I'm going to lump three things together. So actually, it's an enormous question. But I guess I just wanted to, you know, we've talked a lot about sort of specific issues within the realm of, of digital civil society. And I could keep going talking about it for a lot longer, but I, I will be good. Um, I just wanted to sort of zoom back out for a second and ask you a bit about the actual kind of the the process of foresight and how it relates to to the kind of issues around philanthropy and civil society and I guess I'm interested in you know anything you can say about how you sort of stay on top of issues and spot weak signals and kind of translate those into the context you work in maybe what you know what role you mentioned you're a historian by training I'm I'm a sort of dilettante historian but I kind of I find a historical lens really useful in terms of thinking about the future and I'd be interested if you've got any thoughts on that and, and then I guess more broadly, kind of, you know, how, how, what more could be done to get more of that kind of foresight mindset into the mm. wider world of civil society? Yeah, well, it's a great question. I think it's probably useful for slices of civil society and less useful for others. So let me just be clear about that. Like there's, there's a lot of civil society that's focused very much on the here and now. And the here and now matters. So, um, but I think, so thinking like an historian has taught me to um, expect a certain kind of, a certain cast of characters. So that, uh, and by that, I mean, you know, there's, there's gonna be what's the, what were the politics of the moment? What was the economic reality? 
what was the economic reality? Not was the media telling me was the economic reality? What was, who's not being presented on the front pages of the paper? Whose, whose voices are we clearly, we know these people were part of the mix, but they're not here in this set of resources. So where were they? Um, trying to go beyond just the written word um, uh, and, and really think about what is the, the media moment of the time? Um, how, is, how does that play into it? So history teaches us a set of places to look, I think, and to look for those um, uh, people or, or, or movies or, or ideas that in once you've assembled a bunch of it, you say, well, hmm, but I still don't hear from so-and-so or, you know, it's not all here. It looks, it teaches us to look under the, in the crannies, um, it uh, and it 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 also I think at its best is is a lot of about um, mystery solving, right? Like it, I, I'm not a big believer in path dependent um, moments that there there's options, and so when you're considering something historically, an artifact or a document or an interview or something. You try to kind of contextualize it. What, what else is going on? Who else? All that. And I think all of those skills are very useful. Um, I think for civil society writ large, what is so hard to do well is to get ecosystems to think together. So what's going on for the world of libraries or what's going on for the world of um, cultural institutions, libraries, right? You create a library association, get a lot of pot smart people together and they'll talk about libraries and then they can all go back and do their own library thing. But when you get more, reach out beyond that to cultural institutions, or if you reach out to, okay, but we're, we're interested in queer rights and we're interested in black rights and we're interested in um, rights for immigrants and we're interested in disability justice. When you start building those coalitions, um, you can do a lot of forecasting, you can do a lot of visioning, you can do a lot of principle setting. What becomes very difficult is who's responsible and accountable to whom for what actually happens back in the office of those individual participants in that. And, and so I think there actually are a lot of skills and resources for subsets of civil society and, and ecosystems within it to do that kind of imagining what is hard is 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 carrying that out either back at the institutional level or um bringing moving the whole ecosystem then on something uh and i think there it's 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 some of it's it's as much a question of kind of organizational will as um you know do we have the skills or capacity to figure out how to do this more space and time for people to really think about and absorb what's going on is always critical. And that's just the two most precious resources that anybody trying to make change in the world doesn't have enough of. Um, so if there's a way to uh, build more reflection um, into the daily work of people in the space, I think that would be a good thing but i don't know how to do that <laughs> no i, <laughs> I don't I mean, know how to add any hours to anybody's day it's difficult isn't it? and i i mean i totally agree on that because of the number of people i come across in you know the charity world here in the uk and sort of broader civil society around the world who are 
you super smart people on, you know, given the time and the space can have all sorts of interesting thoughts about this, but it's not their day job and they don't have right. the time to right. do it. And if they had that time, they would. And I mean, I, I guess the best I can do is it feels as though, again, there's a pretty key role for funders here in terms of building that space into the way they fund organizations. And maybe, maybe again, the, the optimist in me thinks that in this sort of time when everybody's thinking about what the post-COVID future looks like and kind of how philanthropy might change, actually recognizing that, you know, foresight is not just a nice to have, it's a necessity and that yeah. that's something that should be funded. I don't know, but yeah. maybe that is a bit optimistic. Well, no, I think that's really right. And I, I there may well be a moment here because um, so many assumptions, um, so many of our work life, work, our, work life, so the way we work assumptions have been challenged. And and a lot of them have shown up to be, you know, not really grounded in much. So there's a great opportunity to reimagine um, a different way of interacting across organizational lines or, um, you know, making time, providing people with time and space to reflect. But we have such a um, cultural uh, um, priority for efficiency that, you know, if you give somebody 10 minutes, chances are they're pretty sure they're going to have to fill them with something. And, you know, if I could, if I could undo that, if I could put that back in the box, I would in a, in a heartbeat. I think efficiency and scale are two things, again, that matter a great deal if you're trying to build a corporate behemoth. They, they don't matter as much if if you're, you know, working directly with people and trying to um, imagine a better world, I'm not so sure that efficiency and scale would rise to the top of my my priority list there. No, I, I mean, I, I personally sort of hanker for a kind of enlightenment era life of a sort of gentleman of letters where I just have endless <laughs> amounts of boredom time to think about these things. And maybe that's at one end of a spectrum. But no, I, you know, I, I absolutely agree. I think it's, as you say, and again, maybe it goes back to the sort of what, you know, more practically in terms of what funders think of as efficiency and what they're demanding of themselves and of their grantees. Actually, they're not using the right metrics at the moment. So the things they're measuring, you know, inevitably are kind of skewing activity towards yep. what is being measured. And if they were measuring some slightly different things, maybe that space would open up. But And I think, you know, again, I think actually, if you're looking for examples here, um, I find a lot of the examples of really resilient, change-making, humane and human-supporting efforts are built within marginalized communities, supported by marginalized communities, not necessarily by choice, but by, you know, the fact that they've discriminated against and can't get resources from the white majority world, which will no longer be a white majority world, um, but dominant power. Um, And so there's something to be said for, you know, controlling your own resources as well as your time and goal setting and space and vision, right? So if you're a funder, then how do you be helpful without destroying that capacity of those you're working with? Um, And I imagine there's many, many more possibilities. I think groups like justice funders and trust philanthropy are starting to really raise these questions and say, wait a second, 
why are we driving toward KPIs when what we care about is justice? I mean, what's a KPI for justice? I, I don't know what a KPI for justice <laughs> no, is. No. Um, so. And no, I mean, and that's a, a whole other absolutely fascinating area, which I won't go won't go down that that rabbit hole at the moment. But um, just I mean, before I before I finally let you go, I just to give you an opportunity. If there's anything you want to sort of direct people's attention towards or flag up, I know you've got lots of things coming up all the time. But if there's anything particular, well, I have a couple of things of my own that I'd be happy to promote. But I do want to actually because um, you had asked in in your memo to me about the meeting about something that I do want to get people to think about. Um, you, you called them conversational technologies, which is just mm. a phrase, or conversational interfaces, which is not a phrase I'd heard. And I asked you in return, I said, are you talking about Siri and, you know, yeah. hey, Google? And you said yes. And so um, the language that I use here is the voice assistants, but I like yeah. conversational interfaces better. <laughs> and I bring it up because you're, you put your finger on something really quite important there. And um, because these technologies are expanding so quickly, they're pervading so much of our lives so quickly. And if you wanna talk about gatekeeping, right now, these are enormous gatekeepers. There are three companies, Google, Amazon, and Apple that completely control the way you talk to any device. Even if you think you're talking to your bank, if you're talking to your municipality, if you're talking to your bus company, if you're talking to your insurance company, Chances are, if you're talking to the art museum, if you're talking to, God forbid, the human rights group, right? Your conversation is literally going through the, the processing mechanisms of one of those three companies, which puts us back in the days of the 1998 lawsuit against Microsoft and Internet Explorer, right? One door to the internet. Right now, there are three doors to conversational interfaces. And that's really problematic. And conversational interfaces have such potential for equity because it's easier to talk than to write or to type. Um, and there's so much linguistic diversity. And so this is a great moment to think about that particular technology and what's necessary to design it and, and allow people to talk to Use, use their voice as their point of access and not their keyboard without further um, uh, enriching three men on the planet who own the doorway, right? Three toll keepers. Um, there is movement in this direction. There's um, an open voice assistant project underway that's focused on linguistic diversity and inclusivity. I mean, it's just a great moment to sort of capsize because people, I think, don't realize what it means to say, hey, Google. <laughs> yeah. When you say, hey, Google, you're literally calling Google um, or Alexa, you're calling Jeff Bezos. And yeah. there's another way. And it, and we have a, this moment. And I think it's, it's really very exciting and, and very possible to um, engage with. So thank you for flagging it as a question and, and a great opportunity for people to think about, you know what? Every technological door has not been closed yet. We can stick our foot in this one and, and keep make sure it stays open. Um, and civil society will really depend on it. Um, so that's that's an opportunity. In terms of um, things I'm doing, I'm proud of a 
series that's just launched in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. It'll run for five weeks on, on thinking about now and the near-term future. I have a book coming out in December called mm-hmm. Digital Technology and Democracy Theory. I hope the U.S. still has a democracy when the book <laughs> comes out. It's a co-edited volume with some really fabulous contributions from um, really great thinkers. And then I, I'm most excited about a book that'll be out next year called How We Give Now, Philanthropy by the Rest of Us, the Philanthropy by the Rest of Us, which actually says, let's stop talking about the rich people for a second here. Let's look at what we're doing and let's look at the power that we have. And let's think about how we can make better choices individually, collectively, and, and the rules that shape the game. Because I think we do have the opportunity to really um, put people uh, the, the passion and the care and the compassion and the, the need to change our planet uh, and save our planet um, to work uh, when we focus a little bit more on, on what we're doing and what we're capable of um, collectively and, and less so on the kind of the super wealthy and the corporations and the governments that aren't serving the majority of the people. And so I'm excited about all of those projects and I look forward to sharing them with people. Yeah, absolutely. Great. And and I mean, certainly I think in raising the points around conversational interfaces and and the, the book that you've got coming out, which sounds fascinating and the kind of the role of mass giving versus um, kind of uh, elite giving and how that balance plays out. I mean, those those are two other areas that we could fill entire podcast talking about. So, you know, perhaps if I can twist your arm at some point next year, certainly maybe to coincide with the book, I'd love to talk to you um, you know, about both those and about what's in the book. That would be absolutely fascinating. That would be my pleasure. That would be delightful. I'd love that. Great. Um, well, I will I will, I will. will definitely take you up on that. Um, it just remains to say thanks ever so much, Lucy, for finding the time to come on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure finally getting the, the chance to talk to you about all of this stuff. Um, I'll put links in the show notes to all the things that you've mentioned there that people can follow up on. Uh, and as I say, I definitely will be following up to get you to come on again uh, next year. Thanks ever so much. Thank you, Rodri. It was really great. Bye-bye. Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Lucy for finding the time to come on the podcast. Um, I know there were a couple of points in there where it sort of ever so slightly dropped out, which I think was due to some connectivity issues. Um, Lucy was recording this over on the West Coast uh, in the US and uh, sort of at the point when the uh, California wildfires were were raging and I think was concerned about uh, the possibility of loss of connection. We didn't have too many problems, but there were just a few moments where it dropped out and I hope I managed to to cover them adequately. Uh, As I mentioned in the podcast there at the end, I'm very much intending to get Lucy back on next year to talk about the work she's been doing uh, around uh, the idea of kind of mass giving and the sort of democratization of philanthropy so that'll be really interesting Um, fingers crossed on that one Um, in the meantime I'll put links in the show notes to lots of things we discussed Um, if you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society including the sorts of things Lucy and I were talking about do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis, or if you like the sort of history and academia side of things, at Philiteracy. Uh, if you've got ideas for other people we could talk to on the podcast or things we could uh, explore, themes and topics, uh, drop us a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts, and I'll see you next time. Bye!